Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, The Big Government Car Theft. Please welcome Diana Furch-Scott-Roth. Director of the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming to this event today, the big government car theft. We are honored to have with us three very distinguished speakers. Steve Bradbury, who is a distinguished fellow at the Heritage Foundation and former general counsel and deputy secretary at the U.S. Department of Transportation. We have Donna Jackson, membership development director of Project 21 Black Leadership Foundation and a member of the Independent Women's Forum. We have Mike McKenna, visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation and president of MWR Strategies. Well, this is such an important topic because today Americans have the choice of electric vehicles or internal combustion engines. And some prefer electric vehicles, some prefer internal combustion engines. But a new rule put out by the Environmental Protection Agency would require 60% of new vehicle sales to be battery-powered electric by 2030 in order to comply with EPA's tailpipe regulations. And this affects Americans in three ways, basically cost, convenience, and climate. Electric vehicles are more expensive than other vehicles, so some people don't like the higher cost. For some people, electric vehicles are less convenient because they have a more limited range and they don't have the ability to charge them overnight in their garages. And for some Americans in cold weather states, electric vehicles are not really a good option because cold saps the battery of an electric vehicle. That's why there's only about 510 registered electric vehicles in Wyoming, and fewer than that in North Dakota. Well, from the point of view of the United States, there's also three reasons why it might not be good to be dependent on electric vehicles. In other words, requiring that a large share of them be battery-powered electric. One is energy independence. Right now, China makes the batteries, and we don't want to be dependent on China for a very important source of energy and for our economy. We saw that that didn't work when Russia invaded Ukraine. It didn't work in the 1970s with OPEC. We want to be energy independent, and we are energy independent right now with oil and natural gas. The second reason that the United States as a whole might not want to go full scale on these electric vehicles is the effects on the climate. So the rationale for this EPA rule is that it's going to help the climate, it's going to lower global temperatures. But Kevin Diaratna, the chief statistician of the Heritage Foundation, using models from the Environmental Protection Agency and the Energy Department, has shown that it would only make a difference of two-tenths of one degree Celsius if all the fossil fuel emissions in the United States uh, were erased. So it's not going to make any difference on the climate. And the final reason that people might not want to go full scale on electric vehicles is the human rights aspect. 
there are children who are mining these minerals that are required for the electric batteries. Uh, we have these minerals here in the United States, but because of regulations, many states are not allowed to use them or to have the mines. We don't want the mines here in the United States. But for some reason, uh, the people who are pro propounding electric vehicles are happy to have us depend on mining elsewhere in the world, which is much less regulated, uh, where children are in mines in Africa, in, the, in uh, the Congo, for example. There's slave labor in Xinjiang, in China, uh, getting these minerals out of the ground and making the electric batteries. So there's serious human rights problems. Well, the remainder of uh, this event is going to go as follows. Uh, Steve Bradbury is going to talk about the legal issues for f about five minutes. Donna is going to talk about the effects on low- and middle-income Americans. And Mike is going to talk about the political ramifications of this. So we're going to open with Steve Bradbury. Diana, thanks so much. Um, you know, for a lot of Americans, having your car in the garage with a full tank of gas is a feeling of independence. That's your freedom machine. Um, EPA and also the California Air Resources Board in California have a different view. They are trying to use their regulatory authority to restrict air pollutant emissions to force a massive change across the United States and force consumers, American families, to purchase electric vehicles and automakers to manufacture increasing percentages of electric vehicles. How is EPA doing that in this uh, new set of proposed rules? They're taking existing authorities to restrict air pollutant emissions from cars and they're putting them at such low levels that gas-powered vehicles can't possibly meet the standards. And then they're applying the standards on an average basis across the entire fleet of an automaker, at calculated at such levels that they will force the automakers to produce and sell a certain percentage of electric vehicles, increasing year over year until they reach the levels the Biden administration uh, desires. And the legal questions are very significant that this new proposal raises. Uh, this is a whole new use of these existing environmental authorities. And one big legal question is whether EPA has the power to do this at all, whether EPA can force the industry to change to an entirely new type of technology. Of course, the automakers, you've seen it on TV, they've made pledges, they intend to move to electric vehicles. But of course, that depends on the market demand being there and the technology really being feasible and economic. And um, EPA is saying because they've made these commitments, because Congress is subsidizing it, that they have to transition to this whole new technology in order to comply with uh, EPA's new uh, draconian uh, standards. Um, but there's a legal question whether that's something EPA can force. The other set of questions go to some of the issues Diana raised. Throughout this rulemaking, EPA makes every assumption possible in the rosiest way it can to support its conclusion that all of this can happen easily without enormous economic disruptions for the country and for American families, that everybody will fall in line, all the demand will be there, 
everything that has to happen in terms of new inputs, mining operations, uh, charging infrastructure, the electric grid expansion, everything will fall in place and it will all be smooth and easy and we can make this rapid transition to electric vehicles. There's a lot of assumptions there that may be quite arbitrary and those will be subject to challenge too. So there's the clear legal question, do they have the authority? And then there's the sort of factual question, are all of these assumptions reasonable or arbitrary? Thank you very much, Steve. Now let's turn to Donna. You know, this is the way that the government wants to take away private ownership from most Americans. Um, well, however bad you think this is going to be on most Americans, it's going to be exponentially worse on African Americans. When you're thinking about African Americans, the median income for African Americans is $40,000 a year. That's somebody that's doing well. You're talking about vehicles that cost more than $65,000 a year. They couldn't even qualify for the car in the first place. More than half of African Americans are on some kind of government subsidy. Now, those government subsidies come with asset limits. That means of all your assets, that's cash on hand, money in the bank, property, uh, bank accounts, $2,000 to $5,000. They are not even allowed to own a vehicle that expensive. Is the EPA aware of that? 100%. 70% of black households are headed by a single parent. To think that a mother with four children could actually use an electric vehicle and it would be convenient for her is outrageous. Most African Americans are renters, not owners. They live in multi-generational homes, which means there's not garages to charge an electric char uh, a vehicle. Most have to park on streets and parking lots. So the charging structures are never there. And they won't be there. And even if they were, they couldn't own the vehicle in the first place. The income levels are not there. And then the asset limits are there so that you can't. I talk to many people in the African-American community. I'm in touch with all from, a lot of them don't have my same political lean. And they're always crying out for help because nobody listens to them. When you're sitting there, and if I, if you, if I gave an African-American $10,000 and he participated in what I call a wealth transfer program, he would have to, they would automatically disqualify him. He would have to use all of that money before they could be eligible again. They put, they put a ceiling in how much you can have so that you, are, you have a permanent government-dependent class of people. Now, people would say, you know, but do, why do they live like this? Why was this situation? Because they had, they came, the government came in to help. So all of these programs, when you're seeing that they're supposed to be so kind and so caring, came with an asset limit piled one upon the other so that no matter what you do, 
you always stay in this box. Before these programs came into existence, 70, 87% of black households were two-parent households. After all the wealth, these so-called wealth transfer programs, only 30% of black households have two-parent households. So when you're sitting there talking about electric vehicle, we're talking about charging stations, Well, this is not even a question of even if the person can own one. The other thing to note is that a lot of African Americans, they have inexpensive vehicles. 2,500 is your magic number because you can't own that much property. They're in a second tier market when it comes to vehicle ownership. But listen to everything you're hearing in the news and take it all into account. If they're closing down businesses in minority communities, that means they need cars to go outside of their community to have employment. So basically, this is the Biden administration's war on the poor with these uh, taking away these electric vehicles. Well, thanks so much, Donna. Uh, Mike, what are the, some of the political ramifications of this? Not sure how I follow that, but let's try. <laughs> uh, I want to focus on two sets of numbers, since politics is about numbers. One is a soft set of numbers. One is a hard set of numbers. The first one is the soft set. Uh, the American Energy Alliance and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity uh, conducted a survey recently about this and other things. Um, and it showed that the idea of a federal electric vehicle mandate was wildly unpopular. It was about 55 points underwater with the voters. That's no shocker. Um, we've done polls for years. That's about the same number we've had for years. It seems to be a steady distaste of the federal government telling folks what to do. We've also asked another question year in and year out, and that is who should make decisions, the decisions about what cars you're going to buy and what fuels you're going to use, right? That, too, about 80% of the people, and I know this is going to shock everybody, 80% of the people had this quaint, old-fashioned idea that um, they should make decisions about the cars they buy. And that's the problem, right? If you're, if you're the EPA, the EPA wants to very, very um, carefully and extensively limit your ability to make that choice. So those are the soft numbers. 35 question survey, it's posted up somewhere you can find it. Um, there are about 20 more questions that are just like that, but those are the two most emphatic. The, the, um, the hard set of numbers. And the reason why, um, I believe, I don't want to speak for any other, any other person other than myself is, um, the reason that I believe that this is not about switching to electric vehicles, this is about getting rid of cars, right? Um, any idea how many cars there are in this planet right now? Well, a car expert got it wrong on the way in, so I'll just say, there's a billion and a half cars on this planet at this mm -hmm. moment, right? The United States has about 350 million. 310 million on the books, but my guess is there's probably another 40 million illegals. That's less than Europe, who has 405 million cars, right? So a billion and a half cars on this planet. To meet any kind of net zero in any, any con conceivable future, 2030, 2035, 2050, whatever, um, the incomparable Mark Mills over at the Manhattan Institute came up with a bunch of numbers. I'm going to read them for you because I, I don't want to get them wrong. We would need 42 times the lithium we have right now. We would need 25 times the graphite. We would need 21 times the cobalt. We would need 5 million more tons of, carp, of copper 
we're slated to have a five million ton shortfall, five million ton shortfall of copper in the next five years. So somehow we'd have to magically find 10 million tons. The International Agency, Energy Agency has pointed out that the average, the average time now, the average time from permit application to production out of a mine is 16 years. So we're obviously not going to have 42 times the lithium we need in anything remotely like the folks who are talking about this transition intend, right? I can go on and on with the numbers, um, right? But what I'm telling you is the American people don't want this. And what also I'm telling you is it's not workable. It's not going to happen that way. We're not going to have a one-for-one -one trade out of, hey, bring your gas-powered vehicle in. We'll give you an electric field. The vehicle. That's not the way this world's going to happen. Last thought on the numbers. In the last two years, the raw materials that go into electric vehicles have doubled in price. They've actually a little bit more than that, right? About two and a half times in price. That's because the metals, the underlying metals, the lithium, the cobalt, the copper, all that stuff, they're doing the same curve. They're climbing up the curve. This is not accidental. The United States government's got lots of economists who know what I just told you. Um, this is, this is intentional. They're going to try to price some, in, some, some pretty significant segment of the market out of purchasing new cars. And the knock-on effect will be um, running them out of the used car market as well. And those are both hard and soft numbers. And you can think what you want about the rest of the world, but the numbers are what they are. Thanks. Well, it's clear that Congress would not be able to pass a law that did the same thing. It would be vastly unpopular. In many districts all over the country, uh, people would be revolting against this. So um, I'd like to give the panelists a chance to respond to each other and say, well, how can EPA do this? How can President Biden's administration do this when so many people who voted for him drive used cars like I do and wouldn't be able to afford the electric vehicles. So let's start with Steve. And then we're going to take your questions. And I want to welcome the viewers online. You can send in questions through the chat. And I will get them on this little machine here and be able to ask our panelists. So, Thanks, Diana. I just want to make two additional points. One that takes off on some of the things Donna and Mike said, um, and the other something you just said. Um, on the first point, um, a rule like this imposing uh, this massive industry-wide requirement that the automakers convert to electric vehicles is going to drive the cost of all new vehicles, both the electrics but also the old-fashioned gas-powered vehicles, uh, way up. EPA doesn't acknowledge that, I think, in an adequate way, but it's inevitably the case. And as the price rises and the selection of the most popular gas-powered vehicles disappears from the dealership, many American families, and particularly the lower middle-income American families and rural Americans, are not going to be buying those new vehicles. Whatever they are, however they look, however they drive, they're going to be more expensive, fewer choices. They're not going to buy as many new model vehicles going forward. EPA assumes the sales will continue to be high. The market demand will be there. It's not realistic. What happens when they don't, when Americans stop buying as many new model vehicles? Well, 
those American families, particularly in the inner city and in rural America, will be stuck driving older and older used vehicles. Today, the average age of a vehicle on highways in the U.S. is approaching 13 years, 12 or 13 years. That number is going up, up, up. These types of regulations will just drive it sky high. We will become like Cuba. It's not unrealistic. It's the Cubanization of the American car fleet. And that has very negative consequences for those families. And one of them is safety. Okay, NHTSA statistics show very clearly that older cars are much less safe than newer models in a highway accident. So these rules will, will inevitably cause an increase in highway deaths and serious injuries. EPA acknowledges that, but they bury it, and they don't disclose the full extent of those effects. They acknowledge some deaths, not, they don't even treat the serious injury point. This is a negative consequence for American families uh, across, uh, across the country. And the one um, other thing I want to mention is you, you, you said something which I think everybody could see very clearly. Look at Congress today or when it passed the Clean Air Act. There's no Congress we can imagine that would pass legislation that would put in place these rules. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the point of the legal argument that can be made in court to challenge this. You've heard of the major questions doctrine popular in the Supreme Court and uh, focus of a lot of discussion among the legal community. Well, that's really what it boils down to. Would Congress ever have contemplated or considered approving authorizing this kind of rule? And it's very clear that EPA is going beyond the bounds of whatever authority Congress ever contemplated giving them under the Clean Air Act. Donna. Well, I think one of the things that Americans need to realize is the whole goal is to lower your standard of living. That's mm -hmm. the primary goal. They're not concerned about if the vehicle is going to work, if it fits your lifestyle, if it's going to serve the community that you're living in. It's to lower your standard of living. Now, all the transportation in this country, especially private ownership, expanded the population in this country. It gave people a better quality of life. When you have higher standards of living, better quality of life, you have a population growth. When that declines, you have a depopulation. That's their primary goal. People, especially in minority communities, can turn the smallest amount of car ownership into income. Mm -hmm. If I have a private vehicle, I can drive a little bit further, get a job that pays a little bit more. I can work extra hours. That gives me opportunities to build skills. It gives me opportunities to actually get promotions. They don't want that. They want people who are permanently dependent on the government. They need to make sure that you don't have access to income so you cannot own in this country. 30, 30 by 30, 55, 50, and taking away your transportation are all interrelated. If you don't own any property, then you have to do what the government says to do. They want control. They tried this experiment already in the black community and it worked. 
Now they're coming for you and you and you. And that's the primary goal. Decline standards of living, create socialism, create control. My, they've seen it. You know, in California, they drew a map for this so many so-called so vehicles mile travel. It exactly, it exactly, it was exactly the same as redlining. We, with all of these regulations comes segregation. You already know it's already coming. <laughs> all of these regulations comes a decline, deindustrialization de of American civilization, and then all of a sudden, you know, you have two classes, upper class, lower class. That's their primary goal. And taking away vehicles so that you have the freedom to be able to design the life that you deserve for you and your family is the start. Right. I remember the feeling of independence when I got my first bicycle as a child and then when I got my driver's license <laughs> as a teenager. There was nothing to beat it and I could go wherever I wanted and that's what they want to stop. Yes. Mike. And then we'll turn it over to questions. Yeah, three quick things, things, right? Um, the left has made no secret of, this, of the fact that they are hostile to the automobile. Um, and they are hostile to the automobile because it is automobility, not because it's a, not because it's a machine, but because of what it gives you to, to build on. That's right. Yeah. Um, that's thing one, right? So you have to have clarity about that. Thing two is related, right? The automakers, um, this is a tough thing to say, right? But I think it's true. The automakers are probably largely indifferent to how many units they sell in this country, right? Whether it's 17 million, which is a good year now, or 7 million, they care about their total profit, right? So anybody who's anticipating the automakers are going to be part of the pushback on this, you probably want to think a little more carefully about that. One or two will, but um, the larger Americans will probably not be. Um, and then the third thing, to build on Steve for just one second, uh, the 1977 Clean Air Act and the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments are the governing statutes in this case. Um, I know a little something about both of them. I will challenge anybody, I'll challenge Steve, I don't think the words electric vehicles are anywhere in either of those statutes, are they? <laughs> so to say that Congress didn't imagine it, Congress didn't even put the words in there. That's how far out over the skis we are here. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go to questions. We're going to take one from the audience and one from online. We're going to go every other one. Let's start with you. If you could stand up, tell us who you're with and what your question is, and a brief question. Hi, my name's Brett Hagerman. I'm the CEO of Setting Things Right. Donna, this is for you. Progressives argue all the time that climate change will have a disparate impact on minority communities, and we all well know, I think, and agree that it's actually the response to climate change that will have a disparate impact on minority communities. How can we all work together to get these messages into the community when they may not be thinking about electric vehicles, they might not be thinking about some of these longer term issues? Because a lot of times I think that we spend time thinking on behalf of other people, but we don't take these messages into the community to really change the hearts and minds of people. So they start to, you know, become conservative, like us. <laughs> well, you know what, um, I, I think that the most, the easiest way to do that is make it in the most basic how it's going to affect your life. Because I think that as conservatives, we kind of talk in conservatives. We have political papers with technical, but at the end of the day, people want to know, like, how is, 
am I going to be able to take my child to the doctor's office mm -hmm. or not? If we put it in that terms, then they can understand. I, I'll, I'll give you this example. I always tell uh, minorities when I'm talking to them, when they send you a rental voucher, Section 8, they're paying you not to be a homeowner. That's what they're paying you not to do. When they send you a check to your house, they're paying you not to innovate. They're paying you not to create. They're paying you not to have a marketable skill that you can be competitive in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. One of the things I like people to understand, all of that money that you hear going to environmental justice and all of these programs, 70% goes to the administrative state. That's the first chunk. Then you have another probably 20% going to NGOs to administer those programs. Dollars, pennies on the dollars actually hits the community. There's an industrial military complex, there's a poverty military complex, and both are equally profitable. So let's talk dollars and cents where people can understand. You, if they gave all of the money to each recipient for these programs, they'd all be multi-millionaires, right? And they'd be conservative talking about, you know, tax cuts. The truth of the matter is none of that money ever makes it to the community. Make them aware of how much money is being allocated and how much they don't see. You really think that somebody with high crime in the area cares about retrofits and green canopies? They don't. They're worried about their kids not getting shot when they go to school or sitting in their bedroom better, better yet. They're worried about having quality education. Let's talk about black capitalism. That's what I say to them. So everything I talk to, when I'm talking to people, I'm always talking transactionally. If I go to McDonald's and order something, that's a contract. You can do that on the, on the simplest scale with somebody so that they understand, oh, because I get more calls from black liberals than I do from any conservative asking for help. Mm -hmm. We always talk about how this affects you personally, your friend, your cousin, and, and how it hits your family. You're not gonna be able to, with four kids, with the EV vehicles. They're not going to the doctors and, the, and school because you can't get there on public transportation. It's not gonna happen. Right. It doesn't seem to be environmental justice to take away anyone's cars or the choice of used car doesn't seem social justice it doesn't seem to be any kind of justice at all to take it's away people's injustice is environmental injustice what it is yeah let's go to the first online question uh, to any member of the panel we don't know how to dispose of lithium batteries what does EPA think it's going to do with the old car batteries from electric vehicles that no longer work would someone like to address that well, the answer is, in this rule, it ignores that problem, like many problems. It doesn't address a lot of the upstream costs uh, and emissions that go into the manufacture of electric vehicles, which actually produce a lot more carbon dioxide than uh, producing an internal combustion engine vehicle, because the battery is so energy intensive to make that. Uh, and most of them are made with coal-fired power in China. Mm -hmm. Um, but it also doesn't address those downstream costs and complications like the one you described. So they look through a very narrow glass at 
a set of costs uh, and again, draw the rosiest conclusions. But even within that narrow field that they're looking at, they don't take into account an honest assessment of costs and benefits. Some of the things, for example, that Donna uh, mentioned uh, and the question we had previously, they make an assumption that uh, electric vehicle technology will be hugely beneficial to the lower classes and to minority communities. The assumption is not credible. And that's an example of part of the reasoning in this rule that I think will be really subject to attacking in court for being arbitrary and capricious. I could say that the assumptions that they make, they make because they never ask anybody. They've never asked anybody in the black community, is this what you want? They create rules for black people and they tell them to fall in line and do what you, you're told. They're not expecting people to actually have these vehicles so there's no use to consider how we're going to get rid of them because actually the goal is to take away private vehicles. And if we don't have as many, we don't have to worry about disposal. Question over here, if you could stand up and tell us who you are. Uh, J.P. Hogan, I write about politics. On the EPA and having a right to make these rules, it seems Congress has the power of the purse and somewhere we have to draw the line they don't have a right to cause inflation. With all of this being very inflationary, shouldn't that be a real cost that Congress would have to approve and where would be the history of law that would limit that so far? Yeah, you know, Congress could could stop this through appropriations, but the, it, would, it would be a pretty significant lift because the administration's going to veto anything that comes over the transom that looks like that. Um, in 2025, if you wind up with a Republican trifecta, I imagine this is going to be maybe not the first thing on the list, but certainly in the top five. It's a, it's a, um, it's a pretty sticky problem. Well, that brings us to the next online question. Uh, does Heritage or do the panelists have specific alternative proposals to offer? What would be the implications of those alternatives for climate change and American economic competitiveness globally in the auto industry? Yes, I have, a, I have an alternative proposal. Um, it's a different idea, but let's just try it and see if it works. I propose freedom. Um, I propose that everybody pretty much do what they want and we have a free market. And the one thing about a free market that we've learned is, that we know and we've learned in practice is, it always drives you to the most efficient answer. Mm -hmm always drives you to the most efficient answer, which is always the best answer for the environment, right? Right. Many people like EVs. 6% of new vehicle sales last year were electric vehicles. We should let people who want EVs choose EVs and others choose other vehicles. There's also these non-plug-in hybrids that are very gas efficient. You don't have to charge them up because they, the battery is charged through your car engine or through the braking system when the car is idling at a traffic light. These are very popular vehicles also. Oh. Steve and then Donna. Yeah. Uh, on, on the hybrids, of course, a lot of automakers have invested quite a bit in hybrid technology as a way to move toward uh, fewer, lower emissions from, uh, from vehicles and to comply with the environmental laws. And unfortunately for those uh, automakers that have made those huge investments, EPA is now saying that's not good enough. You, you got to go all the way 
to plug in uh, or electric uh, vehicle technology. But if I could um, follow up for a second on on uh, on Mike's um, response. Um, EPA is supposed to respect the way the market works and market demand. Congress never imagined that the Clean Air Act environmental restrictions would displace markets or force huge transformations in entire industries. Uh, EPA is clearly taking this traditional authority to regulate air pollutant emissions from vehicles to a whole new level with a whole new purpose uh, in mind. And I think we should make it clear, nobody here is against environmental regulation on uh, traditional air pollution from vehicles. But what EPA itself acknowledges is that regulation in the past has been very successful. Auto new vehicles today emit 80% or more less in those traditional air pollutants, the kind of air pollutants that cause smog. The quality of air in most US cities is much improved because new vehicles for years now have uh, achieved really remarkable environmental performance. Again, that's not what this rule is about. It's really not about improving environmental performance of vehicles. It's about this concerted effort to force all of us to change to a whole new kind of technology and pretend that we'll be able to do it and we'll be able to afford it and it'll make everybody's life uh, wonderful. EPA claims benefits from this rule to the tune of trillions of dollars of benefits that they attempt to, to quantify. It's all farcical, really, the way they get to these, uh, these conclusions because they are ignoring the massive disruptions in the marketplace and the effect on the American family and the fact that so many Americans will simply turn their backs and not buy these new vehicles. Mm -hmm. And the effects of that will be generational. Right. Donna, did you want to say something about yeah, alternatives? I mean, the, the thing is, this is the, the situ, real situ, situation. They assume that we're as the smartest we're ever going to be. There's always innovation out there. So what they're saying is, we're smarter than everybody else today. There'll never be another innovation today, so we need to enact these laws today. We, what I'm saying is, we should consider the human cost of enacting these vehicles. And that's what they're not doing. Do an environment, do a human impact study mm -hmm. that says this is the impact it's going to have on the human family. If the solution that they're coming up is worse than the impact, we shouldn't be implementing these types of situations. We are smart. We're humans, we've created so many things just in my lifetime. And we'll continue to create so many. So for them to say, no, we have to do this right now, when the market is not deciding this is what it needs, we shouldn't be going forward. Please stand up and identify yourself. Hi, uh, John Grant. I'm a consultant for the industry and uh, hedge funds. I was uh, wondering earlier, you mentioned, uh, at least one of the panelists mentioned about the auto manufacturers may not care that much, but 
when you look at just the engineering, I mean, the powertrain itself, they're going to lose, I don't know, 30, 40 percent of the jobs in the industry. You look at production capacity, they have to figure out how to unwind the part of the business that makes money and then replace it with the business that may or may not make money. It took months, 15 years to figure out how to turn a profit, you know? What's then, your question? Tell us your question. Well, I'm just wondering, like, do you think that, that they may change, that the auto manufacturers may, once they see the impact of this, may, you know, kind of start pushing back a bit? Because right. it's, uh, it's a hard thing for them, too. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, if, uh, well, I mean, well, Apple makes all these, you know, iPhones, and if the government told them not to make iPhones anymore, they would say, no, uh, I'm going to continue to make the iPhones. Why are these automakers just stepping down. I only know I only know what I read in the newspapers. And what I read in the newspapers is a fairly steady stream of senior leadership in the automakers, including the CEOs, most especially Mary Barra, General Motors, since we're calling people out, um, fully in support of this. Nobody's raised any questions about it. And 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 let me just say what I've seen personally in Washington. I've seen Nobody from the automaking community lobbying against any of this to your question about Congress. Um, so I can only conclude what I see and what I read, and all of that is yes. And as to whether they're going to have regret, I certainly hope they have regret at some point before it gets to a point of no return. But I'm not counting on it. Well, are they expecting to be bailed out, Mike? Of course they're expecting to be bailed out. They're expecting what they want to become. I don't I have no idea what the auto guys want to become. What they seem to want to be is regulated utilities, where the United States government, United States taxpayers, guarantee them a certain amount of return in the course of a year. It's um, this is it, the, this is death uh, by suicide for most corporations. Well, they'll just become government-controlled corporations. Um, I think that we and my organization is doing this. I know that all the people in this panel are doing the same is we need to make a lot of noise. Um, we don't make as much noise as the other side does. We want to be more uh, courteous when we're doing it. Um, I spoke at two hearings on another you know, environmental justice hearing, and it was the first time they were hearing from somebody that wasn't actually going to benefit from these government grants, and they were totally unaware of the real impacts. It makes a difference. Grab some people. Right. And I'll grab some people. Yeah. And before, before I turn to Steve, I just want to say comments on this rule are due to the Environmental Protection Agency by July 5th. This is a proposed rule. All of us have the opportunity to send in comments and make ourselves heard. Everyone here in this room, our online audience, we should all be sending in comments to say what we think. Yes. On the... Uh, automakers and the perspective from the industry. Of course, these are global companies, and uh, they sell cars in Europe, they sell cars in China. China is one of the biggest growing markets. These same companies are facing government mandates to go electric now from the European Union and from China. So China is ordering them to produce electric vehicles as well. They have uh, a big economic problem in making that conversion. That problem is the market in the United States. Consumers, American families haven't jumped on the electric bandwagon. And so they face a real problem, which is resistance in one of their biggest, richest markets. And of course, 
a rule like this that pushes the whole market and the industry in that direction and forces a conversion through regulatory fiat actually benefits car makers in the sense that it helps them reach a state that other governments around the world are trying to force them to, uh, to move toward. Um, I think they're going to have some regret <laughs> uh, there, though. Uh, you know, it's natural that some of the leaders of the companies would come into the White House and make pledges to Joe Biden that, yes, we're, we, we're making huge investments. We're moving toward this new uh, technology with uh, fewer emissions that the uh, White House is strongly pushing for. But I think at the, in the back of their minds, they're expecting some practicality here <laughs> and some recognition that they can only move so far and so fast as the American marketplace will actually support. And now suddenly they see EPA using these regulatory authorities to try to leapfrog the market and assume that the automakers can actually achieve the pledges they've made and the market will just somehow fall into line and everything will be wonderful and they'll achieve it. And I think the uh, automakers are now seeing that that's not realistic. They're losing money on every electric vehicle they sell, with, ex with the exception of Tesla, which now does make a profit after many years of getting subsidized, actually, by the other automakers under these regulatory credit systems that the EPA and the California regulators have, have set up. Um, but uh, the traditional legacy gas-powered automakers uh, are, I think, facing a world of hurt with these rules. But if automakers are expecting to be bailed out, isn't this a material fact that should be disclosed to the Securities and the Exchange Commission and their shareholders? Well, I, I thought that this <laughs> is an important aspect. If they're talking among themselves about expecting a bailout, surely this is something that should be disclosed to shareholders. Well, again, EPA keeps a small window, a small aperture in terms of what it analyzes and addresses under these rules. And so they're not taking into account considerations like that, the disclosure obligations of companies in public markets. I'll tell you another thing they're ignoring. They're not taking into account. And that's something they themselves, EPA, is doing at the same time. EPA has put out, you may have heard, a new proposed rule on clean power the power industry to try to force, again, another technological transformation to force the power industry to reduce its reliance on fossil fuel generated power. Well, hold on to that thought because this, uh, this addresses, this is, gets to our next question from online. The question from online is, what does a huge expansion of charging stations mean for the electric grid, especially mm -hmm. in states such as California? And doesn't it actually require increased need for fossil fuels to power charging stations? Of course, it's going to be a huge new draw on the electric grid. It's going to require massive expansion of infrastructure in the grid itself. It's going to require additional generation of electricity, most of which comes for the foreseeable future from, from fossil fuels. EPA, in its analysis behind this rule, again, assumes, oh, no, we'll quickly transition to alternative sources of energy. We, we will quickly build out the necessary infrastructure to make all of this happen. And electricity rates, miraculously, somehow, will not go up. And, and the point I was about to make is they're also not taking into account within the four corners of this rule 
what they're doing on the clean power plan, which is to try to force reduced reliance on fossil fuels. That's going to increase, that's going to put a crunch on electricity right. supply. That's a, that's a second they're, rule, they're right, not, That's a second rule a second that's rule. currently pending. Yes. And in this rule, they're ignoring that rule. And in that rule, by the way, they're ignoring this rule, <laughs> which would force a huge demand increase and draw on the, elect, on the electric grid. So the two are cross-purposes. And in, in the little window they've built for themselves here in the blinders they put on, they ignore those, yeah. those effects. And, yeah. one, and one of the reasons why consumers are not buying these vehicles is because all of them realize that they've never had an instance where they haven't experienced a power outage. They all are aware that we don't have the existing technology. And the other thing is, how do you put all of your eggs in one basket? So everything you're supposed to have in your home is supposed to work on electricity, including your car. So one entity has control over your entire life. Americans realize that. That's the reason they're not buying these vehicles. The other thing is anything that has to be this heavily government subsidized is not a good product. And Americans realize that. The technology doesn't exist and probably doesn't. Solar panels has always been the uh, new emerging market for decades now. And the other thing I would say is, you know what? I've never seen a government program that worked. I'm sorry. And black communities have been following economic policies of the left for 60 years. Why on earth would I think this time is going to be different and work? It's not. Mike? Amen. Amen. <laughs> uh, question, question in the room. Uh, Trinini, CPI. Um, a lot of this discussion has been centered around the assumption that lithium-ion batteries are the future. Um, I just wanted to ask, have you guys been looking at battery technology? Do you think the EPA could be banking on innovation within the battery industry itself? It doesn't matter. I don't know how to say that any better. It doesn't matter. Whatever they wind up with, right, we're going to have to dig out of the ground. And, you know, no matter how you look at it, there's two central facts of the world. One is mines take forever to permit. You can't really permit them in the United States. I mean, this administration's been hostile to them since the get-go, right? Um, can't permit mines. You can't get them up without, you know, less than 20 years. So that's thing one. The, the other thing that is, no matter what you, no matter what set of minerals, or collection of minerals you want to use, cost curve is going to look like this. It's always going to look like that. And therefore, the, the cost curve on the cars, both electric and gasoline, are going to look like that. So it, it doesn't matter. Online question. What about the ability by the government to control those EV vehicles? If they are all dependent on the electric grid to run and the mm. government decides to turn off the grid for whatever reason, then those vehicles can't go anywhere. Hurricanes and natural disasters will be more devastating because they could ruin the charging grid. It isn't just about the affordability. They could just subsidize them to make them affordable. Can I yes. jump in here? Because I think we see when we look at the rule itself and the analysis EPA goes through, it's very clear that they intend to regulate these electric vehicles as well going forward, even though 
They themselves say the electric vehicles, first of all, they have no tailpipe. These are tailpipe rules. <laughs> this is their authority. They have no tailpipes, and EPA says they have no emissions of air pollutants. And yet, because EPA is now looking at the electric vehicles as the technology of the future that will be necessary to comply with their emission limits, they now have an interest in regulating the success of electric vehicles. And so EPA, you can imagine, will be regulating the batteries in electric vehicles and how they perform. They've said that in this rule. But they will also get in the business with the states like California. We've seen Governor Newsom and others in California talking about limiting the hours when you can charge your vehicle because of the uh, draw and the strain on the electric grid and electricity supplies in California. Well, EPA is going to get into that business, too. And EPA acknowledges in this rule, don't worry, don't worry about the potential limited availability of charging stations for your vehicles because the government and the utilities will just be able to manage that access to uh, that charging infrastructure. In other words, rationing rationing when and how long and under what conditions you can actually charge your vehicle. And EPA, you can bet, is going to get into that game too because they have now uh, expressed an interest in ensuring that electric vehicles are available and uh, can function and, and the whole system can work. So they're going to be regulating from soup to nuts the, uh, the entire uh, system. And California has a bill that would require vehicles to have bi-directional charging. That means that the state can suck the electricity out of your car engine and use it for its own purposes if they think that the electricity grid in California um, does not, is going to have blackouts. Or they could say you have to use the electricity in your car battery to power your house. And uh, State Senator Nancy Spencer said something to the effect that there's no point in having all this electricity wasted sitting around in people's electric batteries. They would require car companies that sell vehicles in California from 2027 on to have this capacity of bidirectional charging. Right now, it's just the Hyundai Ionic and the Ford uh, F-150 Lightning that have that capability. So yes, they want to own the electricity in the battery and take it for their own purposes. So, so you see how far we've come from the freedom of a full tank of gas in your car in the garage to now being dependent on being tethered to this government-controlled network to keep your car available to you and, and, and able to take you where you want to go. And now it's going to become a little fuel cell or power cell, a battery the for grid. the larger uh, collective grid. Yeah. Well, the one thing, the one thing everybody here should take away is this is a government grow, growth bill. The, this is a bill to make sure we can grow the bigger, the government larger. The other thing is in California, where they have more, been more advanced in these initiatives, what you have is low-income people supplementing high-income people. So middle and low-income people are actually supplementing the uh, vehicles, the homes, the solar po power po po panels of wealthier individuals. Again, trying to create a two-tier system where you have rich and poor. 
and they're doing it through these so-called climate mandates. They well, already do that now. One last question for over here. Quick question, because we have five minutes left. Thank you. Joseph von Spakovsky, Conservative Partnership Institute. My question is purely economical. How would this affect small businesses, specifically mechanic shops, with the increasing technology in these cars, making it harder and harder for independent repair shops to fix cars? Right. Essentially, Great. this is a Great question of right to repair. Great question. Anyone on the panel want bad to Bad for in? mechanics, good for electricians, I guess. <laughs> well, very bad for mechanics and all of those dis, di, uh, different businesses that supply the auto industry. You know, the auto industry is one of the core uh, components of America's industrial base. And it's not just the direct employment of the automakers. It's all of the businesses above that that supply components and inputs for the auto industry. All of that, all of those jobs are at risk from a government mandate that forces a transition to electric vehicles. Uh, Donna, quickly, and then Mike, and we have a noon wrap-up, so we have about and, two minutes. And that's their goal. They want to get rid of medium and small businesses. The, bur the regulatory burden on small businesses is four times that of larger business. Economies of scale can, with can withstand these regula regulatory costs. Small businesses cannot. You'll see this more and more that small, bis and small and medium businesses were fold. But that's what they want because it's easier to control four CEOs than it is 150 people. Mike. Great for small businesses in the People's Republic of China. That's right. <laughs> that's Bad for small businesses in the United States of America. Yeah, right, great. Well, I want to thank all of you for coming in person. I want to thank our online audience. I want to thank all our C-SPAN viewers. Uh, this is the big government car theft. Comments to the EPA can be sent in before July 5th. And we all need to stand up for our freedom of choice. I would stand up for my friend's choice to have an EV, and I would expect the EV component to stand up for my choice to have uh, a car with a gasoline-powered engine. So thanks to all of you. Thank you.